0: Turn with me, if you will, Acts chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 to 7, Acts chapter 6. Luke writes, beginning in verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. We pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks for your word. Uh, Father, we thank you that we have an opportunity even this morning to come before it again and afresh, and I pray this morning that you would remove distractions, just the different things that have been going on in our week or even our morning, Lord, and that you would give us uh, in our own hearts just a quietness to come and to sit before you. Uh, Father, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes, that, we would allow, that you would allow us to see truth. I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts, that we would be responsive to you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would begin to unfold for us, for many of us, a dream or a burden or, or something that you would have us to commit our lives to as we serve and as we give our lives away. Father, I thank you for what you're making and how you're changing us, Lord. And I pray this morning as we open your word that you, in a fresh way, would allow us to see your son, Jesus Christ we'd see him in all of his glory, that we'd see him as he moves and as he leads through his church and through his people. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would allow us to hear his voice in a fresh way this morning, Lord. Father, we ask you these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, the story is told uh, of an instructor who was explaining the concept of leadership to a group of uh, brand new, fresh police recruits. And at one point, the instructor could tell he was beginning to lose his class, beginning to kind of lose their attention. And so he decided to turn the class from the, uh, the philosophical to the practical. And so he invited one student to come forward. And as the student came forward, he handed that student a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, uh, the student read these simple words that said, You are in charge now, and I want you to get all of the students out of the class without causing a panic. And so the student read that the deal. kind of felt bewildered, didn't really know what to say, didn't really know what to do, kind of froze up, and he just handed the piece of paper back to the instructor, and he went back and sat down in his chair. So the instructor then invited a second student to come forward, and the student came forward again, the instructor handed him the piece of paper, the student read it, again, same instructions, and this time, this student decided to seize the opportunity, and began to yell and to domineeringly uh, charge and instruct everyone that they had to leave the class immediately. <laughs> not one student moved, not one student got up. So this student went again and sat back down in his seat, and a third student then was invited, and he came forward. And he read the piece of paper, uh, smiled in a grin, and he said, Gentlemen, take a break. It's lunch break. You guys are dismissed. And they all just took off. All right. They all, they all immediately just left the room. All right. And, and so looking back at that, I thought, man, I love that story for a couple of reasons. One, it shows how absolutely simple men are, Right. <laughs> You appeal to our stomachs and you can hold incredible sway over us, right? We'll do anything for food, which is why some of you guys are like, lunch plans today, I'm in, right? Free food, I'm there, right? We men are simple. And yet what I also love about the story, though, is I think it really highlights for us a lot of uh, the different responses instinctively that so many of us have to the concept of leadership. I think there are many of us that when an opportunity arises or or chance is there in front of us, I think a lot of us at times will recoil. We're insecure. We're unsure what to do as we lead. We're unsure whether we'll fail, whether we'll succeed, whether we'll hold sway over men and women. Then I think there are some of us that when that opportunity presents, we bow up. uh, We feel confident and we just charge ahead thinking we can just domineer and tell people what to do. And yet that's not effective leadership either, Right. And then there's a third group of people, uh, evidenced by the last guy, that has an incredible understanding of how men and women make decisions, of how they can be influenced. And, and if anything, they are a master manipulator, but not necessarily a good leader. What I want to do this morning, as we look at Acts chapter 6, is really delve into that topic. Uh, one of my favorite movies is My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And I think of uh, the wife in that movie uh, who will say of her husband that he is the head. But I'm the neck that turns the head, right? Uh, She has a concept of leadership that is quite interesting. And if anything, she's probably more of the leader, more of the influencer in that family and in that culture. I I remember a concert that I went to in college where the lead guy in the band was, uh, I I was just amazed by a night with this guy because he held absolute sway and absolute control over hundreds and hundreds of students. All right. In different portions of the night, he had everyone on their knees. In different portions of the night, he had everyone with their hands up in the air, screaming and yelling, going crazy. At one point in the night, he was crawling up on cabinets, stepped through a nail, and just continued to play on. All right? I remember walking away from that night thinking, man, that guy had complete control of men and women. And if anything, he's more likely to be the Antichrist than he is to be a good godly leader. Right? And yet, it made me, again, in those kinds of moments, walk away and go, hey, what does a leader look like? What does a leader do? From where does a leader come and how is God working and preparing the truly great leaders? I think Acts chapter 6 is going to answer a lot of those questions as we're going to see really a test case of leadership. We're going to pick up some great lessons on leadership that I think for you guys as you guys are walking through Texas A&M with a great sense of what your future holds. A lot of us have the understanding and the sense of vision that we want to influence a culture, we want to influence a world, we want to lead. And what I want to do this morning as we open Acts 6 is kind of pull back and and really provide a biblical grid upon this concept of leadership and really ask, hey, what does a godly leader look like? How does God form a godly leader and what does God want to accomplish through those that are truly his? So that's where we're going to go this morning in Acts chapter 6. And as you may suspect, really, the best moments in leadership come not in the midst of great success, but in the midst of great crisis. And so Acts chapter 6 verse 1 really kind of puts us right into the context of our story. Notice Acts chapter 6 verse 1. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Verse 1 opens up with a repetition that we've been seeing throughout the book of Acts that the early church had emerged and was exploding on the scene. Uh, Thousands upon thousands were coming to know Jesus Christ, thousands upon thousands were joining the church at a time. The church was just exploding. Incredible success, incredible fruit. And one of the things we've watched as we've been walking through the book of Acts, one of the threads I've been trying to highlight for you guys really is notice what Satan does in and through uh, in response to the church's success and the church's fruit. One of the first strategies we saw for, the, uh, for Satan himself in the first few chapters of the book of Acts was that Satan tried to thwart the work of God through external pressure, right? And so the governing authorities, the religious authorities really exerted incredible pressure on the early church upon its leadership to really shut down the work of God yet those men and those believers really stood up to the government, stood up to the culture and said, no, I'm going to preach Jesus Christ because it's all I know. And I don't care what the cost is to my life and to my well-being. The early uh, church, I think, had incredible courage and incredible faith as to what God could do, even in impossible circumstances. What we saw last week was that uh, external pressure really didn't shut things down. So really Satan's next strategy was to bring about internal moral compromise. He said last week that if the early church and if its believers could be morally compromised and the work of God, could be jeopardized. That if the church became internally morally compromised and the work of God, could be jeopardized. So we saw God last week in one of the most perplexing passages in the book, I think, really react in a very, very strong way to show how serious was the problem of sin and hypocrisy and the threat to moral compromise. And he nipped it in the bud. Satan was not going to be able to morally compromise this early church because God acted so strongly. Without that working effectively for Satan, what we're going to see this morning is now another strategy. If Satan can't provide enough external pressure to shut things down, and if he can't provide enough internal moral compromise to really halt the work of God, then the last strategy, one of the things we're going to see this morning, is that he's going to cause and try to cause all kinds of internal division. Really, if Satan can get the early church to fight amongst themselves or even our church or our community to fight amongst themselves, then we get distracted as to the call and the work of God. So you're going to see Satan turn individuals against one another here in Acts chapter 6. And so a complaint arises and breaks out. It's really interesting. If you look at the complaint, particularly, I want you guys to notice that really in the midst of growth, there is great challenge. And we're going to get a complaint that's going to rise as the early church really begins to, in a sense, turn on itself. right? Uh, there's two parties, particularly in this complaint, that really break out and begin to rub against one another. Uh, one group is called the Hellenistic Jews and the other group is called the Native Hebrews. So there's two groups within the church that are beginning to rub on one another about a specific issue. And to give you guys a little bit of background, really, to who these parties were. The Hellenistic Jews were those likely who came at Pentecost, came back into Jerusalem. They were uh, Jewish in ethnicity, and yet they were living outside of Palestine. Their, their primary language likely was not Aramaic, but it was Greek, and so uh, they didn't necessarily have the same stringent sense of the Mosaic Law that much of uh, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem held. And so they were in a bit, in a bit of a different offshoot. Uh, we know from background commentaries that they made up of about ten to twenty percent of the early church. It's so they were very much the minority. The majority group were the native Hebrews. They were those that lived in Palestine. They were those that spoke primarily uh, Aramaic originally. All right? And so in many ways, they also held a much stronger sense of uh, what was necessary to obey the Mosaic law. And so you had these two different groups that honestly have a little bit of ethnic and racial tension and distinction amongst them. All right? They had a lot of disagreements. And so here an issue arises between those two groups. A little a little fight will break out and really you get a sense of the parties. I want you guys to get a sense of the premise that ultimately these two groups are breaking out and, and beginning to rub on one another because the widows for the Hellenistic Jews are fearing that they are being overlooked because the church every week would feed the widows. The church every week took it upon themselves to provide for the widows that were in their community who could not work and who could not provide for themselves. And so in the midst of this weekly feeding of the widows, an administrative issue really was breaking out as they were growing that they were not able to feed all the widows. There wasn't people who were actually in charge of or tasked with or providing oversight to this process. And so all of a sudden, something's beginning to break out. There's going to be a bit of tension. And I think because there's some ethnic angles to it, it was potentially combustible and potentially explosive. So you're going to see the apostles, I think, in great wisdom react to this. But what I want you guys to notice about this issue, though, is I think primarily it wasn't that big of a deal. It was merely administrative and I think in some level merely innocent because they were growing so fast. They just couldn't take care of all the little details. In fact, I think the apostles are going to be incredibly wise here in a minute because they're going to realize that this issue is not that large. In fact, in the midst of this issue, they're going to realize that there's a great opportunity in the midst of this challenge, right? Their growth had led to a challenge administratively, but in this challenge, the apostles are going to realize there's a great opportunity here the first thing they're going to do in their response, I think, is they're going to validate all the parties that are part of this conflict. Notice, notice verse two. So the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples and they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. First thing I want you guys to notice, though, is that in the midst of this conflict that arises, they gather everybody together. They don't see this as just some nuisance or as some small little issue that it's big enough to them that they gather everybody together. But why was it that big? If it's just the feeding of of widows, and so if the Hellenistic Jews were only 10 to 20% of the community, and the widows within that 10 to 20% were probably really, really small, and so this is a really small issue in terms of who it's affecting. (laughs) And yet the apostles realized that it's really a bit and parcel of something much larger. The issue is not whether these widows are getting fed, the issue is whether these widows are valuable to the community. And whether particularly those that are of Hellenistic origin, the 10 to 20 percent, the minority as to whether they were valuable, as to whether they were necessary and even wanted in the community. Uh, Back in May, uh, Marcy and I had a little baby boy named Coulter. And uh, this is us coming home from the hospital with him. And so we had him on May 1st. We spent three long nights in the hospital. All right. Um, I slept on a chair which was just awful, all right? My wife had a baby, which is a much bigger deal, right? Um, but it was just it was just a long three nights, all right? And so the next morning when we finally got to go home, man, I was just so excited to go home, so excited to bring Colt home, so excited to be together as a family. And Caroline came up that morning and she was kind of having some problems, all right? And so uh, Caroline began to inform us that she didn't really want Colt to come home, that that maybe Colt should just stay in the hospital, right? Or maybe he should live somewhere else, but she really wasn't very fond of him coming to her house, right? She was having some adjustment issues, all right? And so it kind of presented itself in a bit of an awkward way. When she came up to the hospital, we eventually finally get all of our stuff packed. We're eventually going to leave and take Colt out of the hospital. And she was bent on being able to help hold his car seat, all right? And so what should have been a two to three minute quick stroller ride out of the hospital took about 10 to 15 minutes because at every step she wanted to help hold him and help carry him out of the hospital. All right. And so we're bumping into furniture. We're bumping into walls. We're bumping into people. I'm having to lean over. My back is killing me. I just want to be home. I'm just getting impatient. And it struck me that for Caroline, this wasn't at all about a car seat, right? For her, she was really wrestling with what is my place in this new family, right? Am I needed? Am I helpful? Am I valuable? Am I still loved? Over so the next 10 days, we would <laughs> have all kinds of flame out moments where she would have to figure that out. That, yes, she is still loved, right? And we would have discipline issues. We had to help her figure out through that. But what we realized over and over again was that there midst be these small little explosions she would have over the next 10 days. That if we really took the issue as what was on the surface, we were missing really the fundamental underlying issue. It wasn't about car seats. It wasn't about eating all of her food. It wasn't about bedtimes. For her, it was about, hey, am I needed and am I still valuable in this family? And ultimately, we bypass all the superficial stuff because we realize what was the ultimate primary issue. And I think for the early church, the apostles were incredibly wise because they realized in the midst of this challenge, it wasn't about food. It was about a small group who's wondering, am I needed? Am I even worthwhile? Am I even noticed in this community that's growing? I think for a lot of you guys, we have felt that way even at church at times, right? Hey, do people notice me? <laughs> do people even know I'm here Am I needed here in this community or am I just window dressing this just here on Sunday mornings? Ultimately, I love what the apostles do because they'll realize that this is a fundamental issue for this group and for the church at large. And so they will gather everybody together to validate for this group that yes, you are valuable and they're going to remedy the issue and ultimately not just have everybody hold their hands and tell everybody that they're valuable, but ultimately they're going to see this also as an opportunity strategically to verify the priorities that the church has Notice that they gather everybody together and they say to the congregation, they say, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. What was their attitude toward the issue? What do you guys think? I think ultimately, I think it's easy at the surface of that reading to say, the apostles thought this was just silly. Let's just have someone else take care of this. Let's just get this off my plate. And you get this real sense that maybe the apostles were kind of snooty. They were kind of looking down. I'm not really, I'm kind of above this, right? Uh, I don't really need to be involved with this. Let me just see if someone else can take care of this. And yet, I think what's really interesting in verse 2, really, as the apostles are speaking, is not that they're saying that they're above this, but what they're ultimately saying to the church is, here are the priorities for us. They recognize that they have been called by God to a task that they cannot divert from, all right? So they're going to say in terms of what God has desired for us, what is desirable for God, it is not permitted for us to depart from the word of God itself and also from prayer, he'll say in verse 4. So instead what's going to happen is they verify these priorities is they're going to affirm that for the church and for the apostles that spiritual needs were vital. That it was very significant that the apostles were devoted to prayer and to the word of God so that men and women's spiritual needs would be met. But the apostles, even though they, they will recognize limitations in what they've been called to, they will clearly affirm that for the church is not to be concerned just about spiritual needs. That's why I'll say in verse 3, notice they go on and say, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And so though the apostles draw a line and say, hey, if this isn't exactly what God has called us to, the apostles will draw a line and say, this is though what the church has been called to. The church has been called to not just spiritual needs, but physical needs as well. Not just to the word of God, but even to the feeding of widows and to those that have been overlooked. I think by and large in our day and time, a lot of us, I would say for a lot of our Bible churches like ours, we're really good at the word of God and spiritual needs, but we're often not very good at the physical needs. I think even for our church, I think uh, if you guys were in main service this morning, you guys got to hear about a lot of the ministries to physical needs that our church is involved with, that we're partnered with in our community. Because I think a lot of the times those things that we are actually involved with are not very visible to you guys on a Sunday morning. So I know a lot of you guys are involved with Youth Impact, which is our ministry to inner city youths that are disadvantaged here in town. A hundred and fifty students are part of that every week. Huge, vital ministry to our community. That is, that is ministering not just to spiritual needs, but also to physical needs. And so the apostles recognize, hey, in terms of the priorities for the church, spiritual and physical, it's not either or. The apostles will say, though, for us, it is either or, because God has called us to something unique. And yet really the, the primary opportunity that the apostles recognize in this moment, in the midst of this conflict, is this. Not just to hold hands and tell everybody that they're valuable, and not just to verify priorities, but ultimately that it is an opportunity to empower new leaders. As the early church is growing, they cannot keep up with the needs that are within their community and outside of their community. And ultimately, the apostles are not going to hold everything to themselves. They're going to see in this an incredible opportunity to gather everybody together and challenge the congregation to step up. That as the church has grown, there's a huge need for new leaders to emerge. And so one of the things I love about the story, really, is you see that I think leadership in the church functions in a very different way than every other arena of life. I think in business, in school, in every other arena of life, we see this great CEO, this great primary leader who holds all power and who's over everybody. But one of the things you see over and over again in the New Testament, speaking of the church and the people of God, as the church has been composed and told to run and told to function, is that leadership is never singular. Leadership is always plural. That when God appoints leadership to his church, it is always a plurality of leadership. There is not one tycoon who determines everything That leadership is always shared. It's shared at the highest level and it's shared everywhere all the way through. Uh, I love the story of the sandhill crane that they'll fly thousands of miles before winter. And one of the things they do is they fly in a V formation for thousands of miles is that they will rotate leadership in the front of that V formation. So it's never just one bird at the very front for thousands of miles who's, who's taking the greatest burden of that flight. But they'll rotate leadership because that role is shared amongst that group of cranes. I think it's a great picture, really, for what the church is meant to be, that we are meant to share leadership. Leadership is not just for the few, it is for the many. Leadership is not just of a singular nature, it is of a plural nature. Really, the church functions through leadership in a way that we often do not see in many other settings that we look at in our world and in our culture. Ultimately, something is happening here that is of a very distinct nature. And one of the things I love as we look at this story particularly is that we get to see really how leaders are formed. Not just what they do, but ultimately their background, their foundation, and how they're made. And so really as we look at the making of a leader, Luke is going to give us, and the apostles will give us really a set of primary uh, requirements for what the kinds of leaders that God is making. And the first thing that we really see over and over again is that the primary concern God has for the leaders that he will appoint is tested character. That the first thing that God is looking for over and over again is tested character. Notice the apostles will say it like this, that when you uh, appoint seven men, look for men of good reputation. Not just that they had character, but they had character that had been tested and been demonstrated. I think as we think about leadership, I don't know that character is the first thing that we think of. But as you look at 1 Timothy 3, as you look at Titus 1, as you look at these passages on elders and leaders in the church, character is always the foundational and the primary focus. Character is essential. And I think character really becomes the foundation piece upon which every leader stands. And it's really interesting, I think, as we look through our scripture and even as we begin to look at our culture at large today, I think character is becoming a more and more vital and more and more visible aspect of the leader. That ultimately, I think the leader really, his limit in terms of his scope, of his influence and his impact is always going to be limited, not by his skill set and his experience, but by his character. Character is foundational to the life of the leader. In fact, Abraham Lincoln has said it like this, that nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. That ultimately when you and I have an opportunity to step into leadership, it becomes a great testing spot for our character. And if our character will fail, then it becomes the primary, I think, limiter to the kind of impact a leader can have. I think you and I got a great picture of this even this weekend as the University of Arkansas visited us and got shellacked by our beloved Aggies, right? 58 to 10 yesterday, right? Um, And as they showed up, really, uh, if you guys have been tracking their story this semester, they were a top 10 team as they started the year. Top 10 team. And they have fallen from grace incredibly to a large measure. But what happened? I think really, I, I don't know that you can trace it to anything just in this fall, but I think you have to trace it all the way back to the summer. And you guys know the story for the Ar- University of Arkansas football team. Their coach was fired on the spot this summer. Because ultimately, he was in an improper relationship with a girl that was at one point a student. Then later on, seemed to be uh, on staff. He would ride around with this girl, even though he was married on his bike, having all kinds of improper relationships with her. He would get in a wreck, I think, with her on his bike and then lie to the media and to the public about it. And eventually, he would be dismissed from his space as the head football coach of the University of Arkansas. Bobby Petrino was an incredibly talented football coach. His issue was not skill set. It was not capability. In like fact, the University of Arkansas, the in, in the, one of the hardest football conferences, was doing fairly well. They were even slated this year to be top 10, right? But it's interesting that even for our culture at large, not just the church now, but even the culture at large, character is becoming a limiting factor for leaders. Skill sets and experiences and bottom line success aren't enough to cut it anymore. Character is vital and character is essential, not just in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, and Acts 6. Character is essential in every arena of leadership that you will step and that you will pursue and that you will consider. Let me just say, I think character really is the foundation piece to your pursuit and to God's forming you in the ability and the hopes that you will one day serve and lead in some kind of context, wherever that may be. So I want to ask you very simply this morning, what kind of character do you possess? What kind of character do you possess? When no one's watching, and when no one knows, what do you do? Who are you? Are you one person when people are watching and another person when no one's watching? Who are you when no one's around? Because that is your true reality of your character. And it is that character that eventually cannot be hidden, but eventually will be shown even in public. Secondly, let me ask, as you guys think about leadership, whether it's within a church setting or even contrary, or not contrary, but outside of our setting, uh, what do you see to be as the most primary foundation piece for a leader? Is it skills? Is it experience? Or is it character? I think it's not coincidence that the New Testament will every time first run to this concept of character as God shapes and as he forms a leader because it is vital. Men men and women will not follow anyone who is not true to who they are. If they're phony, if they're contrary to reality, if they're presenting something that is not true, it is always going to disable them and always, in a sense, uh, handicap them as they lead. I think this issue of integrity, this issue of character is vital. Second thing, though, is I think that kind of character, though, isn't just equipped. It isn't just formed accidentally. Notice the second thing that uh, the apostles will say is, as you look for seven men, look for men of good reputation, but also those that are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. I think it's not just those of tested character, but those of proven spirituality, because the kind of character that a leader needs is one that they cannot do any, through any kind of self-help book. The kind of character that a leader needs is the kind that of the Spirit of God can come and transform and grow and build afresh. And ultimately, as you and I are exposed to the Word of God and as that kind of character is shaped in us, or we're also being grown and shaped to see the world as God sees it. And we're growing in wisdom to be able to lead and to be able to see as God sees, not as humanity and as our culture sees. And it is the kind of leader that has a character that's been shaped by God and has a kind of wisdom that has been shaped by His Word that is posed and is ready to make the biggest impact on our world and our culture that is possible. It is a kind of leader that has a tested character and a demonstrated uh, spirituality. And then lastly, I think that approaches it as a servant leader. Notice at the end of verse 3 that they're full of the spirit of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task. It's interesting that the apostles will take their authority and they will, they will in a sense push it down to put others in charge of responsibilities. One of the things I think is really fascinating about this story though is think about the task that they were put in charge of. This was not a glorious task, Right? They are being put in charge of the feeding of a few widows in the congregation where no one would have noticed, no one would have been patting on backs. It was a very, very meager role. This wasn't what many were likely trying to aspire to, right? But, but seven men will be chosen for a task that no one probably necessarily wanted, but because they were willing, because they were humble, they would serve when no one was looking, where no one cared, where no one was patting people on backs. These guys really, I think, approached ministry and approached leadership really with a mindset of, of humility and a mindset to serve. In fact, there's no coincidence that I think this concept of service is all the way through chapter 6. Notice, back to verse 1, the early church is growing, but a complaint breaks out because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Again, there was a need for someone to serve. Verse 2, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables the theme of service is over and over throughout the section. Even verse 4, speaking of the apostles themselves, they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Ministry there could be translated, it's the same Greek word for service. That it wasn't just these seven that will be appointed in a minute to feed and to serve the widows, but even the apostles themselves see their role of leadership as one of service. They are there to serve the word of God to people. Uh, These others will serve food to widows. They were seeing themselves as those who were served the word of God to others, whether whether they were at the top or whether they were stepping into leadership. They were all in a role of service and of ministry. Right. I think as we think about leadership, uh, I think we often approach it with the wrong lens and the wrong attitude that ultimately what leadership is, even at the largest levels, is an opportunity to serve at the largest levels. Leadership is not a way to uh, get applause. Leadership is not meant to be a way to establish perks and get all that you can for yourself. Leadership is meant to be a way to give your life away. So again, I want to ask you, as you guys think about leadership, do you see it as an opportunity to serve or do you see it as an opportunity to gain visibility and fame? Whether it's in the church setting or whether it's on campus or whether it's going to be one day in a workplace setting, as you think about leadership. Do you aspire to it because you want fame and notoriety or do you aspire to it so you have a greater opportunity to serve men and women and to make an impact? I think it's not just in the church setting, but I think even at large, I think leadership is an opportunity to serve and to give our life away. Really, we get the best picture, I think, of that very leadership actually in Ephesians chapter 5. Speaking of marriage, Paul will say that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is head of the church. So husbands, if you want a test case of what it looks like to lead, he says, look at Jesus Christ. So husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. Ephesians 5 provides a great picture, a great portrait of what leadership looks like. As husbands are called to look at the example of Jesus Christ. Who, what did he do in his leadership? He bent down, he served, and he washed the feet of the disciples. He, he gave his life away for the church so that they could be reconciled to her. I think Jesus Christ provides us an incredible picture, not just of what leadership looks like, but even of the gospel itself. That if you're here this morning and you're thinking about leadership, maybe for some of y'all, if you don't know Jesus Christ, the bigger question for you is, how can I be reconciled with him? And what we see in Jesus Christ is not just a picture and a portrait of leadership, but ultimately what we see is this, that there was one who had all the glories of heaven and yet left them behind to be incarnate, to take on human flesh and to step on the earth. And he would live absolutely righteously, taking nothing for himself. And he would live an absolutely holy life. And then he would give his life away as he would be crucified on a cross in a painful and anguishing death for you and I. That he loved us so much that he would lead us by serving and by giving his life away. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ. And the greatest thing that you can walk away with is not lessons in leadership, but it's a realization that there is ultimately one leader who gave his life away for you. And then the kind of character that is necessary to lead is one that will never be aspired to, never received unless you've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that he can begin to transform you and to cause you to lead in this kind of way because it is not human instinct and it's not modeled anywhere in our culture. This is completely, in a sense, uh, non-cultural. This is anti-cultural, in a sense. This is not at all what leadership typically looks like anywhere else that we look. And so we're getting a picture that is really so contrary to our world and so contrary to our culture, but so perfectly modeled by Jesus Christ. And the last thing I think we can begin to see is not just that uh, how God begins to make a leader, but ultimately the kind of leaders that God chooses. Notice again, verse 5. So the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Why these seven men? Why were they chosen? Uh, surely there were many who would fit the bill for what was being required for this kind of role within the early church, right? Surely there were tons of men and women who would have fit the bill in terms of reputation, in terms of character, in terms of a willingness to walk with Jesus Christ and a willingness to approach leadership as service. Why these seven? It's interesting even just trying to read through their names. Their names, I think, all have a Greek background because I think all seven... According to commentaries were likely of the Hellenistic Jew uh, grouping. The 10 to 20 percent that were the minority that I think all seven that step up to this role were all of that minority grouping most likely. What does that mean and why is that significant? I think it was these seven that would have seen the need that existed in the church they would have been moved by it and they would have stepped up and volunteered to do it. Not just that they fit the bill generically in terms of what God was looking for a leader and the kind of leader that God was shaping. But ultimately, I think they also fit the bill in this sense, that ultimately God was calling and creating a kind of group of people that they saw a need and they responded to it. They saw a need and they responded to it. They were burdened by what they had seen, their hearts were moved, and they said, hey, I want to be a part of that. I I want to ask you this morning, as you think about our church, as you think about our campus and even our community, I want to simply ask you this. What vision or burden do you have for our church for our wider community, or even for our campus, whether it's a or Blinn? Is there something that you see that your heart is moved for? Is there a vision of something that you see that you think, man, I would love for God to do this, or I would wish our church would do this, but they don't, or I wish this could happen on our campus or that God could do this on our campus or in our community? What is it for you? Is there something that you feel like God is beginning to build a burden in you for? Is there something that you see that's missing that you wish, man, it could be different, I think for these seven, they will look at their community, they'll look at their church, and they'll see something that they know is an injustice, and they'll want to see a change, and they'll step up to be a part of that. So I think what's fascinating is that, for, that as God begins to shape for you guys, sometimes a vision and a burden for what could be or what should be, that sometimes as your eyes are open to that, I think that's part of how God is beginning to work so that you begin to see and be drawn into something that God is wanting to do. I think there's so many times, whether it be on our campus, in our community, or even in our church, that men and women see something that it could be or should be, but it's not. And they say, well, I'll go somewhere else where it could be and it will be. I want to challenge you as you think about your role and your time here at Grace, as you think about your involvement on our campus at AM or Blend, or even our community at large. Are there things that you see that you wish could be different? Are there things that you go, hey, I, I wish this could be that way, or this wouldn't happen in this kind of way? And I want to challenge you as you look at that and as the Lord begins to open your eyes to see that, that you would also begin to realize that maybe God is opening your eyes to see it so that you would have a part in making it happen. Not going somewhere else to see that come about, but going and sticking right where you are to make it happen. So not just what vision or burden do you have, but I'd love to ask you as well, how could you be a part of fulfilling such a vision? If there's something that you see, if there's something that your heart is breaking for, then why might God be opening your eyes to see it? What might God be doing to prepare you and to call you into that so that you could have an impact so that you could make that happen right here where you sit? I'll tell you guys, our church is not perfect. Our church uh, has weaknesses, has blind spots that honestly, sometimes we on staff do not see. And you guys sit here on Sunday mornings, you guys sit here throughout the week and there are things that you wish that our church could be. There's areas that you think we're not attended to or not seeing. And I'd say, hey, voice those and then begin to ask the Lord, How might he use you to be a part of changing that culture, changing that weakness, changing that blind spot, not just in our church, but in our community, even in our campus. I think part of what God begins to do for these seven, but also he does for you is that he begins to highlight for you something that you see that's lacking. He's also beginning to usher you into possible participation to make that happen and to see that vision fulfilled. And ultimately, what happens here in the rest of the, uh, the next couple of chapters, I think, are fascinating because the rest of chapter six, the re- all of chapter seven and all of chapter eight are going to highlight two of the men that are chosen right here in Acts chapter six, Stephen and Philip. These two will start in a very meager role, and yet God will do something in and through them that will go way beyond anything that they, he, they started with. They started in a place where they would serve where no one was paying attention, where they weren't looking for a limelight. They served in very small ways, and God began to do something eventually with them that was giant. It's not just that in verse 7 that the church continues to grow, but even more what we find in Stephen's story, at the end of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is this, that he becomes one of the most legendary martyrs of the early church. A guy who said, hey, I see some widows who are being overlooked. Let me attend to them. Let me feed them. God will start him there and shape a character and a vision and a mindset. And in that place where no one was watching, he'll begin to prepare a leader for something great. Uh, a story that will unfold in the rest of chapter six and chapter seven. And not just Stephen, but even Philip, the second guy who's mentioned. In the rest of chapter eight, really, we get a story. We get Philip's story. and He becomes one of the most famous evangelists through the early church story of Philip that we'll look at next week in terms of his ability to share the gospel. He becomes an incredibly noteworthy evangelist. Two guys who started in very small spots, who were humble enough to serve in places where no one was patting people on backs, no one was uh, applauding their efforts. They served where no one was watching and God began to shape in them and grow in them a kind of character, the kind of, of walk with the Lord and the kind of vision for something great. And what I want to challenge you guys is that, is what is the dream that you have? One of the favorite things I love to do is to read autobiographies of, of men and women who have accomplished great things. I had a chance back uh, this summer to read Martin Luther's biography. It was just amazing, incredibly fascinating character. Uh, even right now, I'm uh, working through and beginning to read a little bit of John Adams's biography, an incredible story on leadership. And one of the things I love about these stories is seeing how God shapes these men and women, how God uses them, and how he begins, how he begins with them. And one of the uh, stories that we read a few years ago, even as a staff, was the story of George Mueller and his autobiography. Uh, it was a guy who, by the age of 14, was almost being arrested multiple times because he was drinking and he was gambling and he was stealing. All right, the guy had just was a mess. So his parents end up sending him off to a boarding school where God grabs a hold of his life and begins to shape and begin to transform him. And then eventually, as he leaves that place with a heart for the Lord, he begins to have his eyes open to his culture and he begins to have a vision for the desire to, to minister to girls and orphans who have lost their parents. And so he and his wife in their own home, because all they have, they end up opening their home and making it into an orphanage. All right. And eventually in that first year, 30 girls end up coming in. And eventually that orphanage would grow. 30 would become to thirty, which would become 300, obviously not all in their home. Uh, but they would eventually grow that orphanage where by the time that Mueller died, he had ministered to over 10,000 orphans in Bristol. They just knew him as the guardian of Bristol's orphans. He just had a vision that God began to grow bigger and bigger. And God began to do something with a guy who had great faith, great humility, that thought that God could do anything if he just prayed for it. It's fascinating. Uh, He wouldn't just open orphanages, but he'd open up even 117 schools that would educate over 120,000 students and kids in the Christian faith. What God accomplished with this man that started in a very meager place, something that we could never have imagined. And one of the reasons why we as a church love doing college ministry, love seeing you guys really as this strategic part of our church, because you guys are going to go out and accomplish great things, is that you guys are starting in a spot where you guys are open to the Lord to see whatever it is he would do in your lives. You guys are in a place where no one's watching. No one knows you guys. God is in this plot, having an opportunity to shape your character, to shape your walk with him. In the beginning, I think for many of you, you beginning to shape a vision for what he wants to do with your life. And let me encourage you, in the midst of whatever dreams and visions you may have, in the midst of however large they may be, don't be unwilling to serve in little places. Because it's in those little places that I think God begins to work in the most significant of ways to prepare you for something even greater. Ultimately, I think for a lot of us, as we even think about our own church, Grace Bible, the reason why we built Southwood as a campus, the reason why we went to what is known as a multi-site deal, if you've ever been to our Anderson campus, we are in a sense two campuses and yet one church. We, We wanted to grow in this kind of way because we wanted to maximize the opportunities for leadership. Many churches just went off the highway and built a bigger church. So it had a bigger room where one leader continued to lead. And yet ultimately what we want to do is we built this place. And as we went to a multi-site idea was we wanted to maximize the opportunities for you guys as students to lead, and not just in one bigger room and one bigger church, but in a place where you guys could step up, be known and have an impact and to lead. So I want to ask you, as you guys have been here at this church, maybe this is your first Sunday or maybe this is your hundredth Sunday, especially if you're maybe a six year senior, right? I, I don't know where you are in that. All right. But I want to ask you, no matter how long you've been here, I wanted to say to you, uh, how does God want to use you, at least here in our church? What does God have in store for you? Have you found a place to serve yet? Our desire isn't just that you guys would be here on Sunday mornings, but our desire is that you guys would get involved and find a place to serve. So I want to give you guys a few quick uh, possibilities of what those places could be. Places that many times are not so visible, places that many times don't get gr- a lot of applause, but I think places that are really significant. One of the first things I want to highlight for you guys is our children's ministry. I could bring up my two kids right now and really kind of say, hey, you want to love these kids, you know? Um, uh, but one of the greatest things I think for you guys as students uh, to get involved at Grace, but also to connect with families, it really is through our children's ministry. And so every Sunday morning at 9, 15, at 11, they have from babies all the way up to sixth grade that you guys can have an opportunity to not just hold a baby, but to teach a kid to teach him about Jesus and to walk with him and to show him what it looks like to know and to love Jesus. You guys have an opportunity uh, in a way that sometimes parents don't because you were that cool kid. All right. Uh, that cool college kid to speak into their life and to show them, hey, the walking with Jesus is a great thing. And so whether that's, you know, in children's ministry or even in youth ministry, I want to encourage you, hey, would you consider doing that? If that's a spot for you or a spot that your heart would jump to, let me just say that's a great spot. They're always looking for for volunteers and for leaders, and you can simply come talk to me or you can simply email the children's ministry people that are on our website. Great spot, great opportunity to get involved, not just in the life of our church with our families, but also to serve. Another thing that maybe you are unlike me, and maybe you have some actual musical ability, I have zero, all right? Uh, uh, but if you have any musical ability, there are all kinds of opportunities to serve in, in our worship ministry, not just up front here in college class or in the main service, but even in our children's ministry, even in our youth ministry. And so if that's you, if you have that kind of makeup, that kind of heartbeat, I would love for you to let Tyler know or simply email Colin Bates just to find a way to serve, a way to get involved. And so again, we're doing worship stuff in children's ministry, on college ministry, and main service every Sunday morning morning and throughout the week and great spot for y'all to potentially get involved. And then one other spot that's less visible that you guys may not even know about at all is that every uh, Sunday morning we have some guys that are behind the sound booth that show up here at like 630 who are here for hours to serve so that you guys can worship and that you guys can connect with the Lord, uh, whether it be through worship or through teaching. And these guys are just at the back booth. And if you would have a heart to serve in that capacity, if you're wired in that kind of way, be a great spot to get involved. We're always looking for volunteers. You guys can talk to them. You can come talk to Tyler and myself as well or simply email BJMcGiever at grace-bible.org. I wanted to throw you guys just a few opportunities, just a few of the sampling of the things that are going on, because I want to help you find a spot. What are the gifts? What are the passions you have? What is it the Lord may have for you? How can you get involved and how can you serve in this body and find a way to serve in this family? That's ultimately what we're hoping for. That's ultimately what we want to see happen for you guys. And so uh, the worship crew is going to allow you guys to have an opportunity just to respond in worship. And I want you guys to have an opportunity just to come before the Lord and say, hey, uh, what are the gifts you've given me? What are the passions you've bestowed upon me? What is the vision that you are beginning to shape in me? And how is it that you would have me to serve? My prayer and my hope for you guys is that you would have a heart that's open to that responsive to that as you guys come before him this morning.